Well, church, this morning we are in the fifth week of our next five series. Uh, we got one more week because why stop at five, right? We're going to go to six. And so next week we're talking about glorifying God. This week we're looking at expanding our generosity. Last week we talked about maturing stewards. And then the first three weeks were about reaching neighbors, raising disciples, and launching leaders. And so as we think about the next five years of ministry here in Faith, and even beyond of what the Lord is leading us to become as a church body, and what that's going to require of us is what we've been talking about in the next five. And so this morning, as we look at expanding generosity, we want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24 will be our text this morning. Um, I'll read it here momentarily for our listening. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there if you would like to do that. But in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, we'll read together down through verse 24 this morning. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's Word. It was a part of the Next Five initiative. And by the way, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're not asking for a dime from you, okay? Um, This is an initiative for our members uh, as we think about what the Lord's leading us to become and do in this community. And we've launched the Next Five initiative as a part of that process. But in that initiative, we're asking for each of our church members, those of you who, for whom this is your home church, your covenant member of Redeemer Church, to consider where you are on what we've called the generosity journey. Right? I've got to you know, throw that image up there for us, Chase. Uh, you may have seen this in the brochure that we've produced and printed. It's at the back kiosk as well. But where you are on that journey of generosity, and we call it a journey because no one ever really arrives. Okay, It's not like we have a destination point that we can say, hey, we have arrived and we don't need to consider any further where the Lord might be leading us in our journey on toward generosity and so God's always stretching us he's always challenging us he's always prompting us and moving us and spurring us to give in ways that maybe we've never given before but along this generosity journey there's five steps here that we've outlined for us the first one is what we call the starting line right and so just go ahead and run that forward there for us Chase as we move through these but those who have never given to Redeemer and if you're if that's the position that you're in what we would ask is if you and the as a part of this next five initiative is that you would consider uh, making a, a gift for the first time, the very first time, writing a check or making an online gift to Redeemer over the course of the next 30 days. So sometime between now and the middle of November that you would take that first step of the generosity journey and giving for the first time. If you've already taken that step right, and become a first-time giver, then maybe we, we would ask you to consider taking the next step, right? Of, of, well, that, that would be the first step, sorry, of committing to give for the next 30 days. The next step would be uh, to become a regular giver, 
right? A regular giver. And so maybe you've given sporadically here and there, but maybe you would consider the next step for you being uh, committing to give a certain percentage of the income the Lord has blessed you with on a regular schedule, whether that's every other week or that's every month or that's every quarter. However, the Lord has provided for you and your family that you would make that a regular routine and habit as a part of your life, a discipline of giving in a regular percentage on a regular schedule. If that's where you are already, maybe the next step for you would be moving toward the giving of a tithe and giving of 10% of your income over the next 90 days. And so between now and the end of the year that you would begin to give at the level of a tithe. Maybe that's the next step for some of you. The next step for those of you who are already giving it a tithe is that you would consider how the Lord is leading you to expand your generosity as an extravagant giver. And that's why we say no one ever arrives on the generosity journey, right? Because even when you reach that benchmark of saying, okay, now I'm giving 10%, right? The Lord may still want to continue to stretch you and may still prompt you to give beyond that to certain initiatives and ministries, So we're asking everyone who's a member of this church to consider where they are on that journey of generosity. Are you someone who needs to take the first step and make an initial first-time gift to what the Lord's blessed you with, with what the Lord's blessed you with in accordance with how He's blessed you through the ministry of this church? Or maybe you need to take that second step of moving from just a first-time giver or a sporadic giver to a regular giver or to a tither or to an extravagant giver. Wherever you are on that journey, we're asking that you would consider as we move toward the next five, taking that next step with us as a church body. Now, if we're going to expand our generosity, right, that brings me to our text this morning, then one of the things that we've got to do right, is to break the grip that money has on our lives, the mastery of money, right? We've got to break its grip on our lives because money, both by nature and by being discipled in the culture in which we live, right? Because we're all being discipled in some way, shape, or form. But money tends to have mastery over our lives, right? It tends to dominate and dictate our decisions. But why does money have that kind of mastery? Why does it have that kind of power? Why does it have that kind of grip on our lives? Let me give you two reasons. First of all, because our hearts from birth are bent to find our security and our status in money and possessions, and we experience anxiety whenever we lack them. Right? If you don't believe me, right, look at a young child. Even from our youngest of days, we find too much of our satisfaction in money and things. Right? You look at children. I've got two of them. I take them to the store. Right? Not as much these days because I leave them home now whenever I go to the store, but whenever they were younger. And I brought them with me to the store. And when we get to the checkout line to those strategically placed right, pieces of candy and strategically placed toys, and in the checkout line, it's like a nuclear bomb goes off in their heart and they're never going to be satisfied unless you buy them the dollar and fifty cent Lego package hanging next to the Jolly Ranchers at the checkout line, right? And so they melt down. And it's not just that one time that you take them to the store that it happens, but those of you who are parents, you know, right? That the next time you go, that what you bought them last time is not enough this time because their hearts are so bent to find so much of their happiness, so much of their joy, so much of their satisfaction in stuff, right? But it doesn't end there, does it? Because that continues 
over the course of the rest of our lives. We may mature out of melting down, at least I hope you would, right, in the checkout line at Target, uh, but there is still that bent in our hearts, and that's only reinforced as we're discipled in the way that we think about money and possessions within our culture. With the cultural stream in which we live, the influences that we have, they're shaping the way that we think and the way that we feel about money. We're being trained to think this way. right? We're all being discipled by one worldview or another. Okay? Right? Case in point, in 2015, a Christ, uh, not Christian artist, uh, far from it, a country artist named Chris Jansen, he released a song entitled, Buy Me a Boat. Now, speaking my language, you know what I'm saying? Now, consider, consider the lyrics to this song. He says, I ain't rich, but I sure do want to be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that had kicked the bucket and that I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says that money can't buy happiness. He says, they call me redneck, white trash, and blue collar, but I could change all that if I had a couple million dollars. In other words, people would see me differently if my bank account was full. I keep hearing that money is the root of all evil and you can't fit a camel through the eye of a needle. I'm sure that's probably true, but it still sounds pretty cool. But it could buy me a... And then the chorus, right? But it could buy me a boat. It could buy me a truck to pull it. It could buy me a Yeti 110 iced down with some silver bullets. Yeah, I know what they say, money can't buy everything. Well, maybe so, but it could buy me a boat, right? And see, that type of imagery is reinforcing this bent in our hearts toward finding our identity and finding our security and finding our satisfaction in money and the possessions that it's able to purchase for us. But over and over again in the Bible, and particularly here in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has a different vision for life. A very radically different vision for life. A vision where meaning is found and joy is measured not by the money and possessions that they can buy, but by our participation in the advancement of God's rule and reign to the ends of the earth. Right? And so, as we look at Matthew chapter 6 this morning, I want to first say what Jesus is not saying about money and possessions, so that there's no misunderstanding this morning before we get to look at what He does say. First of all, what Jesus is not saying is that we are wrong for making money and even making lots and lots of money in legal ways. Okay? In legal ways. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that it's wrong to make lots of money. Nowhere does the Bible speak against the, 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 the barns being, being full at harvest. However, all over the Bible, we're warned against keeping lots of money. That's the admonition the Scriptures give time and time again. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable about a man who was already extremely wealthy. Right, So his house was large, his barns were full, and he has this exponential harvest in the field. And he brings in all of this crop. And so he decides that instead of, right, he's already got surplus, instead of giving away what had been brought in from the field, what was he going to do? He was going to build a bigger barn to store all of his grain and all of his goods. And what Jesus says at the end of that parable is not just, man, that, that's 
probably not the best route to go. You may want to consider an alternative. What Jesus says is very strong. He looks at the man and says, you fool. That's what Jesus says about that mentality. About keeping tons and tons of resources. He says, it's not, and so that's first of all, it's not saying that we're wrong for making money or even lots of it, but he warns us over and over again about keeping lots of it. Second, it's not saying that we shouldn't save. In Proverbs chapter 6, we're told to consider the ant who gathers and stores for the winter. So it's not wrong, we're not wrong for saving. Okay? And preparing for the future. Third, it's not saying that we cannot enjoy nice things in moderation of quality and quantity. That we cannot enjoy nice things. And fourth, it's not saying that we should embrace some sort of of, of poverty spirituality, right? Where I'm more holy, the more destitute I am. Okay? We would reject that view as well. So, if that's not what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6, what is He saying? Alright, what is He saying? Let me give it to you as plainly as I can this morning. And what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 about money and possessions is this, is that you can, you have a choice. Okay? You, and you only have two options. He says either you can serve money and use God or you can serve God and use money. And he says those are your two, only two options. You can either serve money and use God or use money and serve God. Look at what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What Jesus says here in the text is this, that serving two masters, listen, is not a moral imperative that He gives, but rather a logical, rational impossibility. That's what he lays out. What Jesus doesn't say, if you look at the text, is you shouldn't serve two masters, right? You should consider whether or not what that's good, what that's going to do to you, right? He doesn't say you shouldn't do that. He says you can't. In other words, it's an impossibility. It's not an imperative that he's giving. He's not saying go forth and thou shalt not serve two masters. He says you can't do it. Because ultimately, at some juncture, at some point, the wills of those two masters are going to collide. They're going to be in competition with each other, right? They're going to, one's going to want to have ascendancy, right? And to be able to assert itself over the other. And so as a result, those two masters, they can't coincide with each other. You have to choose one or the other. Either your lives, Jesus says, will be built upon the pursuit, acquisition, and retention of money and material possessions, or it will be built on the participation and the advancement of the Gospel and God's redemptive rule as the kingdom expands to the ends of the earth. He says those are your options. Either you will serve money and use God to acquire all the things that you want to get, or you will use money and you will serve God and be a part of His agenda, not trying to hijack Him for yours. It's real quiet in here this morning. Right? Only one master will get your love and loyalty, and in every instance, when there's competition, collision, or contradiction, one will win and one will lose. One will survive and one will be destroyed. One will receive our loyalty and the other will experience our betrayal. In every instance. Now, most of us in this morning, 
in here this morning probably think, money, money doesn't have mastery over me. We may need to think again. Let me give you four markers of the mastery of money in our lives. The first one is this, that instead of saving, we hoard. Instead of saving, we hoard. In James chapter 5, James speaks to a group of what he calls wealthy Christians, those who are rich in this world. And this is what he says to them in verses 2 and 3. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be like evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. In verse 2, listen, James uses the language of rotting and in verse 3, the language of corrosion. And his point is this, okay? His point is that what is not rightly used deteriorates. What is not rightly leveraged corrodes. It ends up rotting. He's not speaking here of saving and preparing for the future. He's speaking of hoarding and keeping back so much for ourselves. Kent Hughes is a Bible commentator and pastor, and he said it this way. He said, we can enlarge our savings and build huge accounts to hold it all. We can plan our retirement so we will have nothing to do but change positions in the sun. Ah. We can plan our menus for the twilight years so that nothing but the finest cuisine crosses our lips. We can live as if this is all of life and we can laugh our way to the grave only to discover at the end that we have nothing and are in God's eyes fools like the man in Luke chapter 12 who just keeps building bigger and bigger and bigger barns. See, one of the markers of the mastery of money in life is that instead of just saving and preparing well for the future, that we hoard. Second of all, another marker of the mastery of money is that we give, but we only give in ways that would benefit us. We only give in ways that would benefit us. In Luke chapter 14, we find the story of Jesus dining in the home of two, these religious leaders of a Pharisee. And on the Sabbath, and at one point, he turns to a man who had invited him, and he says these words. In Luke 14, 12-14, he says, He said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. See, essentially, Jesus speaking into a culture, and in that day and age, that culture revolved around benefactors and relationships. In other words, there were certain people who had wealth and could finance right your public agendas. And so whenever you gave banquets and you put on shows, you invited those people who could come in a, to, to, I mean, we still do it today, don't we? To wine and dine them. Okay, in order that they would then fund your agenda. Right? That's what was taking place in the ancient world. That's how deals got done. That's how, uh, 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 you know, I don't know, they didn't have campaigns back then, but that's how campaigns would have been run, right? All those types of things. 
But Jesus says in a culture that was all about social positioning, all about benefactors and favorites, He says, into that culture, do not give in ways that only benefit you because you know you're going to get repayment from the money that you invest. He said, but rather whenever you give, Right, whenever you serve others. He says, you throw a feast, you invite the poor and the lame and the crippled. Why? Not because they can repay you, but because they can't. And one of the markers that money has mastery in our lives is that we may give to things, but we only give to things that will directly benefit us. Or return, make a return on the investment that we have given. Third, Another way to know that money has mastery over you is to look at your understanding or confusion of your, our understandings around necessities and luxuries. Necessities and luxuries. And one indication uh, is, is of money having mastery over our lives is that typically ministry and charity only get the leftovers in our lives. In Mark chapter 12... Verses 41 to 44, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he's ministering to them, discipling them, and he sits down in the temple. And in verse 41, we read, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. It says, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. See, while some give out of their leftovers, out of their abundance, there are others who give out of all they had to live on, like this widow. See, if money is your master, then you see what we end up seeing. Listen, I've seen this in my life over the years. I am not exempt from this. Okay? This is not me, who have a, who, the person who's arrived at how he manages his own personal finances, saying, let me instruct you on how you should handle yours. But listen, I've seen this in my own heart. Right? Is that we end up confusing necessities and luxuries and seeing the money that we spend on ourselves as necessity. And any money that we might give away as a luxury, right? Any money that we might contribute to mission work across the globe, any money that we might contribute to what God's doing in our local church, any money that we might use to bless a family that's in need, right? Yeah, if we have it left over, then we will give it, not where can I decrease the spending on myself that I see as a necessity so that I could increase my ability to be generous with where the Lord opens opportunity for me to give, right? Am I giving just out of my leftovers? Or if I'm carving out space, creating more and more space for there to be bandwidth whenever the Lord opens a door for me to be able to contribute, that there is money there to freely be channeled in that direction. And then fourth, fourth, another way to know that your heart is in bondage to money or it has mass, money has mastery over it is if it's always the Lord's calf that dies. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but you, you know, years ago there was a British farmer and he was uh, out on the farm one day and he noticed that one of his cows had become pregnant. And so he goes in to his wife and says, 
Honey, we've got an expectant mother out there in the field. I'm going to care for that cow and make sure that cow, that calf comes and we're, we're, going, to, we're going to celebrate when the calf comes. When it comes time to give delivery, right? It's before the days of, I don't know, do they do sonograms on cows? If Alyssa was in here, she could probably tell me, right? But um, before, it was before the days of any kind of sonograms on, on, on these animals. But when it comes time for the cow to give birth, lo and behold, it's not just one calf, but it's twins. And there's two that come out. And so he goes into the house and tells his wife, and they're celebrating and rejoicing, and now they have these two cows, these two calves. And the husband says to his wife in a moment of great benevolence and generosity, Honey, we had no idea that the Lord was going to provide two calves out of this pregnancy, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep one cow when it comes time to sell them, and we're going to keep the proceeds from one for ourselves, and we're going to give the proceeds from the sale of the other calf to the Lord. Right? We're good Christian people. We're going to give it to the church, and God's going to use that and he's going to bless it and we're, we, we just feel generous that way. Right? And so time goes on and he continues to care for both the cows, both the calves, feeds them, right? tends to their needs and then he comes in from the barn one day with this very somber look on his face and his wife says to him, baby, what's wrong? And he looks at her with just this heartbroken disposition and says, the Lord's calf died. And the wife looks at him and it says, I don't remember us. Does it like marking a number or writing on each calf? Which one was ours and which one's the Lord's? And he says, oh, no, no, no. It was very clear from the very beginning. That one was the Lord's. Right? And the point of the story is this, is whenever things get tight for us, right, the first place we typically begin to make cuts from is from our giving is from our capacity to give to ministry and meet needs in the lives of those who are suffering. When things get tight for us, it's always the Lord's calf that dies if money has mastery over our hearts. Right? Those are four markers of the mastery of money in our lives. Listen, one of the ways you know that money doesn't have mastery, let me give you a marker on the other side, is this. Okay, is if as the Lord blesses us with greater financial uh, resources to manage and steward, one of the ways you know money doesn't have mastery is if there is an ever-widening gap, okay, an ever-widening gap between the lifestyle that you could live and the lifestyle that you do live. Okay, if there's a widening gap as the Lord continues to bless and adds to your your harvest, okay? Right? Is there a widening gap between your actual lifestyle, the way that you actually spend money, and your potential lifestyle, what you could spend if you wanted to on yourself? Is there a widening gap there? If there is a widening gap there, that's a prime indicator that something else has mastery over your heart other than money. Okay? Next question this morning is this, what if there was something else that had mastery over our hearts than money and there was a widening gap? What would that look like, church? Let me tell you what it would look like. It would look like a freedom that you, have, you and I have never known before to invest in gospel initiatives. 
we would be free to invest deeply in gospel initiatives. In verses 19 to 21, Jesus speaks of these two options when it comes to acquiring and storing up treasure for ourselves. He says that we can store up treasures for ourselves here on earth, or we can store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Right? So we can either right, build bigger and bigger barns for all of our grains and goods, or we can give money away. We can give resources away. We can channel resources towards gospel initiatives on the foreign mission field and here within our own community. Right? He says you can store up tre- treasures here on earth, or you can lay them up in heaven. That's how the old language talked about it. Lay them up, right? That wasn't like a layup in basketball. But taking them from here, right? And the resources God's provided here. And putting them up there into things that are going to last for eternity. Not things that eventually, right? Moth and rust are going to destroy. And thieves will break in and steal. Are you taking things that God's given here and laying them up there where no one can touch them? And you'll rejoice all of it for all of eternity at what the Lord has done because you took what God's given here and laid it up there and took what God's given here and laid it up there where no one can touch it. So you can either store up treasures here on earth or store up treasures in heaven by investing in gospel initiatives. Let me see if I can break it down for you like this. Listen, in, in 1993, Steven Spielberg, famous director, all right, he released two movies that he directed. First one was Jurassic Park. Okay, and the second one was Schindler's List. Okay, those two movies both came out in 1993. Now, the first one, right, Jurassic Park, right, got all kinds of popular level acclaim, right? Because who doesn't want to see reverse engineering and reconstitution of dinosaurs? Right? That's pretty crazy. Right? So it got all kinds of popular in the popular culture, all kinds of uh, acclaim. But Schindler's List. When it came time for the Academy Awards in 1994, Schindler's List blew every other film out of the water. And in fact, when people talk about the greatest movies ever made, oftentimes that movie is in a very short list of movies as they speak about the greatest films ever produced. In 1994, Schindler's List won the Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Directing, Best Writing, Best Production Design, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Music. All right, That's not to mention all the other lesser awards that other film festivals and awards programs gave to Schindler's List. Now Schindler's List was the retelling of a story from World War II in which a man by the name of Oskar Schindler who was a German by nationality and a part of the Nazi party by political affiliation for expediency moved to Poland where the Jewish where, where the Jewish people were being rounded up into concentration camps and when he moves there he moves there with the intention to profit off of the war Right? And so he was going to do that through basically slave labor in his factories as he took Jewish uh, people in Poland and forced them into labor in his factories. And so he was going to force them to produce the goods that he was then going to sell so he could get rich. And he could make lots and lots and lots of money. And he does that in Poland until he sees the SS troops come in and begin to round Jews up and send them away into concentration camps and then slaughter them in the streets as well. And when he sees this one young girl wearing a red coat, 
right? The film's produced in black and white, but the, the, just the imagery of that little girl in that coat, he sees her hiding from the SS soldiers and then later sees her body being carted away to be buried. And he's broken by that experience. So that as, in, as the persecution of the Jewish people began to continue to ramp up there in Poland, as Nazi Germany began, its grip on the war began to decrease. Right? They began to try to round up all the Jewish people from those, those camps and send them to Auschwitz to eventually kill them all. And so Schindler begins to work and bribe the SS soldiers and the, 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 the commanders there in Poland to keep his, the, the, the Jews who were working in his factory safe. Right? So he takes the wealth that he had begun to amass and he begins to bribe all of these German commanders. Some exorbitant amounts right to to protect the safety of those who were working in his factories because he had come to sympathize with them in their plight and toward the end of the movie Oscar Schindler has a conversation with Isaac Stern and in that conversation he's standing there as the 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 the, the, the Jews that he had rescued from being sent to Auschwitz right they're there hundreds of them right and he is, he, is, he is contemplating the things that he has done over the course of those span of years. And listen to what he has to say. Schindler says to Stern, I could have got more out. I could have got more. I don't know. If I had just, if I had just got more. And Stern says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. Look at them. And Schindler says, if I had, if I had made more money, I threw away so much money. You have no idea. If I had just... And Stern says, you, there will be generations because of what you did. And Schindler says, I didn't do enough. Stern says, you did so much. And Schindler says, this car, this car, go with. Right? One of the SS commanders, go with. He would have bought this car. Why did I keep this car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. And then he says on his lapel, this pen. This pen, two people, this is gold, two more people. He would have given me two for it, at least one, one more person, a person stern for this. Schindler says, I could have gotten one more person, and I didn't, and I didn't. And he weeps as he gets into the car with his wife, and they drive away. The line, when I first saw that movie, the line that rang so true and so loud in our culture and even within our churches is this line, I've wasted so much money. I've thrown it away. If we are storing up treasures, laying up treasures in heaven, there will be, like Schindler, an ever-widening gap between what we could do and what we do do. How we do live. Investing in gospel initiatives. To see people not only rescued from concentration camps, but from eternal condemnation in a real place that the Bible calls hell. So how do we go about doing this? How do we take that next step on our generosity journey. To be a part of what God's doing. Listen church, I'll say it to you this way.
as, as clearly as I can this morning again. This is the only way for us to do this. It's not for me to get up here and try to emotionally manipulate you into doing something that you're not ready to do, but to tell you this, that the only way this happens is if we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's the only way. Look in verses 22 to 23. Jesus says that what you fix your gaze upon will determine what preoccupies your attention and your affections and will ultimately determine your actions. What you look at will lead you. Look what Jesus says in the text. He doesn't say the eyes are the window to the body, right? Kind of like the hallmark sentimentality, right? Your eyes are the window to the soul. And when you sit down with your soulmate, you look deeply into their eyes and you see all of the years that you've shared together. Right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't say the eyes are the window to the souls. He says the eyes are the lamp of the body. In other words, he's not saying the eyes are like a passive pane of glass that you're just looking through, but rather they're like an active beacon of light so that what you fill your eyes with, what you fix your eyes on, what is preoccupies your attention, what you're staring at, what you're gazing at, he says, ultimately will determine what is filling your soul. Hmm? Not, not you look through them to see what's in there already, but what you're looking at with them will fill you on the inside. Right? He says if our eyes are good, then our whole bodies are full of light. If our eyes are bad and fixed on darkness, then our whole bodies will be full of darkness. They are the lamp of the body in the sense that they show us, like light does, which way to turn, which way to move. Right? How the Lord is leading us. They give us direction and move us from point A to point B. They essentially have a navigational effect in our lives. Right? Let me see if I can illustrate it for you like this. Back in the day before, there was uh, Google Maps. Right? Some of you are like, there was a day before Google Maps? Right? And before the day that there were like road atlases that you kept in your car. Okay? Right? When you had those maps to go by. Right? And so you tried to plot out a journey in turn-by-turn directions. Right? And before the days in which they even had modern charts, whenever sailors sought to transverse the ocean or a body of water from point A to point B, right? when those explorers came across the Atlantic Ocean, Right? They didn't, they didn't have, that was uncharted territory for them. And so how did they navigate? They navigated with fixed points in the heavens. Right? In particular, the North Star. And so the sailors would look up to these fixed points in the heaven and they would know in relation to that fixed point, which is immovable and unchangeable, the course that they had established. Were they, were they still on course or had they veered off course from that fixed point they were looking at in the heavens? Right? Because what our eyes are looking at, they have a navigational effect in our lives. If our eyes are shifted to the right or they're shifted to the left, then we are going to naturally drift in that direction where our eyes are looking. But but if our eyes are fixed on an immovable point on the horizon, then we know that no matter where we are in our, our course of, 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 of travel, no matter where we are on the journey, that we always have that fixed point on the horizon. And so what your eyes are looking at are going to lead us in a particular direction. You don't believe me? Right? I know it from my own personal experience. Listen, my wife and I, 
We lived in a little 1,200 square foot home in Rowlett, Texas. It was the first home that we ever bought when we moved here to go to seminary. Right? It was about, I don't know, 800 square feet on the first floor and 400 square feet on the top floor, one bathroom. Right? It was a tight squeeze once we started having children in there and the grandparents decided they just can't stop buying toys. And so it was a 1,200 square foot toy box. All right? That's what it turned into. And so we started looking at a new house right, to have a little bit more space and spread out a little bit. We tried to sell that house. It wouldn't sell. We tried to build a house back here in Wood Creek. Uh, we had to let go, like back out of the contract because we couldn't sell the home that we were in. It was in the middle of the housing market collapse back in the late 2000s. Right? And so when the housing market began to turn, God opened a door. Right? Our house wasn't even on the market. Right? And we got an offer for it through a realtor that we knew, and we took the offer, and we began to search where the Lord was going to lead us, and He led us to a beautiful little home over here, right? We, uh, we, we went from 1,200 square feet to about 2,200 square feet here in Wood Creek. And when we got into that home, right, we were like, man, this is amazing. We have space to spread out, right? We can, we, we're not on top of each other constantly. We can actually have people over here and not feel like we're sitting on each other's laps whenever we try to share a meal together, okay? So it was amazing, you know what? Six months after getting into that home, I'm watching HGTV. Right? And I see all these projects they're doing on HGTV. Right? And I'm like, oh, we could do that here. Oh, we could do that here. And we could. So all of a sudden, that home that was this blessing from the Lord, now I'm discontent. Why? Because of what I've been fixed with my eyes on. Right? Or we go out and buy a new vehicle. Right? Uh, listen, some of, some of you teenagers, right? You're like, man, if I could just get this truck with this lift kit and these wheels and these tires. And listen, not even teenagers anymore, right? Some of us men in the room, we're the same thing. Right? If I could get this boat or I could get this, this tool or I could get this, 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 this shop built, right? And so we fix our eyes on these things. And so what happens when we fix our eyes on these things is resources become channeled in that direction toward whatever it is that we're fixated on. Right? That's reality. And y'all can be as quiet as you want this morning, but you know I'm telling the truth. Right? Right? Whatever we fix our eyes on, it has a directional capacity for where our resources and our energies and our time gets directed. That's why Jesus says the eyes are the lamp to the body. They shine light and show you the direction where, where, where you, they, you can determine where you're headed by what you're looking at. That's why I say this morning that if we're going to break the mastery of money in our lives, the grip that it has on our hearts, and we're going to expand our generosity, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Fix our eyes on... Because when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, all of a sudden, whether or not you have shiplap or whether or not you have rims, right? It does, it's, it's, it's like peripheral now. Because my eyes are fixed on Jesus. I see Him in all of His glory. Where my eyes are fixed on Jesus. Listen, if, your, uh, if my eyes, if your eyes are, if we're constantly looking at ourselves, 
If we're, then we're easily offended. We're demanding. We have high expectations from others. We use others for our gain. We only keep those around who make us feel good about ourselves. We hold grudges and we hoard our time, our energy, and our money. If our eyes are fixed on what we see in the mirror. But if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, listen to this. If you're looking at a God who has loved His enemies by dying for them, and He prays for those who persecute Him as He dies for them. That's phenomenal. Saying, Father, would You forgive them for they know not what they do. Then it will lead you to becoming a loving, gracious, compassionate person who at great cost to yourself is able to forgive and move towards others even when they've wronged you. If you're looking at a God who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life away as a ransom for many, then it will lead you to become a person who comes under others to serve them and doesn't compete with them, doesn't live with expectations from them, is not demanding or easily offended by them. If you're looking at a God who, though He was rich, as we saw last week, yet for your sake became poor so that by His poverty you might become rich, it will lead you down a path to becoming a person whose heart is shaped in such a way that you would give generously and sacrificially to Gospel initiatives. If you're looking at a God who did not withhold His only Son, but willingly and freely gives us all things through Him, it will lead you to become the kind of person who freely gives of all that they have been given. Time, energy, resources to what God wants to do in our lives and in our church body. So you have to see that Jesus spent His life to lay up treasure in heaven. He gave Himself so that one day I might be there, one day you might be there, and that is His treasure. That He is laid up by the giving of His life, church. If our eyes are fixed on self and stuff rather than Him, we will serve money and use God for our own agendas. But if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, our Savior, then rather than self and stuff, then you will use money and serve God. And Jesus says, those are our only two options. He says, so make a choice. You cannot serve two, only one. Fix your eyes on Jesus, church, and store up treasure in heaven. Fix your eyes on His glory. Fix your eyes on His majesty. Fix your eyes on His beauty. Because when something is so glorious and it's beautiful before your eyes and it captivates your heart, then naturally you want to give yourself to it. How is the, the Lord leading you to expand your generosity as you fix your eyes on His Son? Let me lead us in prayer to that end this morning. Father, today, I recognize that this conversation is not a comfortable one within our culture. For whatever reason, uh, God, many of us get hung up on the issue of money and resources in the church perhaps because of bad experiences in our past, because of manipulative ministers who have sought to wring the church dry for every penny she was worth, for pastors who embezzled funds from the congregation. Father, whatever has given us a, a distaste for this conversation in the church. Father, I pray that You, by Your grace, would bring healing to our hearts Father, I pray that this church 
that the members of Redeemer while we offer the opportunity and transparency with all of our books, that they would look, see where money is going. If they have questions, they would ask. But I pray, God, that previous poor experiences would not forever paralyze your people from expanding their generosity. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. For the joy that was set before Him. The joy of a reunion with His Father. That the God-man would be seated at the right hand of the Father. After he secured his treasure, his church, his bride by living in our place and dying in our place. Help us to fix our eyes on him. And Father, may that break whatever mastery money has had over our hearts. And may that heal whatever poor experiences we've had previously. And may we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where thieves cannot break in and steal, where termites cannot eat, where moths and rust cannot destroy, where corrosion cannot touch it. Give us contentment here that we might be full of compassion. And we might respond to the promptings of your Spirit as you lead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.